Did you know 90% of top performers have a high emotional intelligence and a higher than average annual income? As one of the most highly valued skill sets, emotional intelligence or EI is what distinguishes outstanding leaders. Deepen your EI skills today with the Daniel Goleman Emotional Intelligence course, a 12-week online course to develop your inner capacity, become a stellar leader, and build high-performance teams. Save your seat and $50 with the coupon code PODCAST. Learn more at courses.keystepmedia.com. That's courses.key stepmedia.com. Don't forget to enter coupon code PODCAST at checkout for $50 off your registration. Mom and dad can give me advice. Anyone can give you advice and they can help you as much as they want to. And But at the end of the day, you are the one that has to, you know, take on the advice and improve yourself we have every year a swim carnival so uh we all go down to the, uh one of our swimming pools locally and we do a little carnival uh my friend was really nervous he was getting pretty het up about a race that he didn't want to do that he was going in and i just told him that like you just don't worry about it um I have a little visualization if you want to do it. Uh, it'll help you take your mind off the fact that it's a race and it'll make you feel good about doing it and excited. And we did a visualization of his race. He said he felt a lot more, he felt, and he looked a lot more calm and he felt, he looked a lot more composed than before. He wasn't as jittery and he went on the race and he didn't win, but he said that he felt he did a lot better and he felt that he, did, he was proud of his race there after that. Welcome to First Person Plural, Emotional Intelligence and Beyond. This is the first of our summer series on leadership and emotional intelligence. I'm Hanuman Goldman, and I'm here with EI correspondent Elizabeth Solomon. Hey, Liz. Hi, Hanuman. I'm excited to listen to this interview with Brad Brooks and Courtney Harrison from One Login. They're longtime practitioners of emotional intelligence and have been implementing and modeling EI across One Login and have seen some really incredible results. And Hanuman, I'm wondering, you know, with your experience of both leading an organization and also working collaboratively, right, with individual thought leaders and with other teams from other organizations, do you have stories or examples of where emotional intelligence has really been um, the make it or break it in your ability to lead and collaborate? So specific examples I have a couple of times led my organization into terrible emotional states. The resources were really depleted and we had a massive, massive project that we were still needing to, to get over the finish line. And instead of 
Well, I mean, I guess I was in a real bind because I didn't, I didn't feel like I had the things that I needed for the team, which were, were actual resources, like monetary resources. And so uh, in lieu of that, I tried as much positivity and as much like, uh, you know, I went into a real, like uh, the guy from the office who's Steve Carell's character, Yeah, I, you know, like yeah. everything's yeah. falling apart. And like, regardless of that, I just had this, this uh, insistent positivity and then it didn't go well. And that totally lost trust of the people I worked with. And, and you know, the morale just plummets in that situation. I love that you gave that example because one of the things that is so true about all of these competences is that they all have a shadow side, right? It's like any, any, any tool uh, misused, overused, improperly used is, is no good anymore. And when you're talking about positive outlook, this example, it's so wonderful, right? Because there would be a tendency to think, okay, we're going to focus on the positive, right? And we're going to keep morale high by doing that. And we're really going to like keep people's spirits up and, and have them sort of garner a sense, like the emotional resources of positivity in, in absence of the physical resources that they need to do their job. Yeah. And like, that doesn't really work. Right. Because actually what happens is people say you're like, it's like a form of gaslighting in some way. Right. It's like pulling the wool over people's eyes and saying like, people are like, actually, we just actually need the physical resources to do our job. And so you telling us everything's going to be okay when we feel like it's not. And then we see that it turns out not to be feels like um, a form of dishonesty in some way. So it's, again, it's a tender balance, I think, because your instinct is not wrong. Your instinct to, to keep the, the vibe high in some way is not wrong. And there always has to be, um, as a leader, I think the ability to be present with the truth. And the yes. truth may be that you do not have enough resources or whatever that truth is. And again, it comes back to the aspect of leadership that is leading, but also the aspect of leadership that is providing in this situation when you're leading an organization. But there's also a massive weight that somebody who's a CEO holds with the financial when it's when things are getting pretty low. And that's something that it's not fair to put on the, the other people in the organization. That's not their roles. And so figuring out how to be honest about the piece that you don't want to be too heavy, I found a pretty difficult balance and a dance to do. And I hope that I'm never in that situation again. Mm. I hear two things in what you're saying, actually, Hanuma, and I hear one, like the emotional intelligence it takes to um, be able to self-manage in the face of extreme stress, right? Financial stress and feeling the burden to, the very real burden to take care of the people within your organization and and literally put food on their table. But I'm also hearing a piece I'm thinking about organizations or leaders who decide to be incredibly transparent about the fiscal state of their organization without putting the burden on people, but to give people the knowledge so that the cards are face up on the table, right? And people have some sense so things don't come as a surprise. And I think delivering that information and helping people be okay with hearing the truth while at the same time ensuring them that it's not their responsibility to fix it takes a lot of emotional intelligence as well. 
So this is a good lead in to hear Dan's interview with Brad Brooks and Courtney Harrison from One Login, because Brad, who's the CEO and Courtney head of HR, um, share a lot about how they have leveraged emotional intelligence to support One Login through massive change and uncertainty. So let's dive in. Hi, I'm Daniel Goldman, and I'm here with Brad Brooks, CEO of One Login, and Courtney Harrison, head of HR there. I want to thank Matthew Lippincott for coordinating this opportunity to talk with two leaders dedicated to practicing and implementing emotional intelligence across their organization. Here's Courtney Harrison and Brad Brooks explaining how they supported their employees over the past year and how emotional intelligence related to their organizational values. To begin, Courtney tells us about a specific program she launched during the pandemic. So I sit in a role, and I think my leaders are pretty open as well, where people could be pretty honest about, I'm dying here, whether it's homeschooling with my kids or women leaving the workforce to do majority of homeschooling and things like that. And so what I did was create a program that were uh, the employees who wanted to join me. It was just who want, who's, who's struggling and wants to jump into this swamp with me and figure out how we get out of it together. And what they had to do was watch six hours of a show called Chef's Table on Netflix. It's a show where they follow uh, entrepreneur, restaurateurs, and owners that have been wildly successful. So what it does is it follows the journey of these folks from when they were, what, where's your passion? What inspired you? How many times did you think you were going to quit? It shows how passion shows up in the beauty of their food and how that passion differentiates them in the industry. And so I picked six shows that every single person had some major challenge in their life. The big thing I said is when we come to talk about it, they had two other assignments, zero distractions, no slack, no reading email while we're all on the phone, no going off camera. And if so, you don't get to come. You're going to earn the right to be present, to listen. There's probably going to be emotion in this thing, and you're going to know why. If someone's telling a story that's hard for them, and you're like, I, I got to go, I got to slack, it's not going to work. So I love the fact that I could try to teach, especially younger people in Silicon Valley, you really want to solve a problem, stop being distracted. We live in a distracted world. We give you distracting tools. This isn't how you get through this pandemic. So that was part. Then the next thing they had to prep for was come in and uh, pick one story that shaped them in their life. I didn't say the most, but I said it had to change who you are or how you make decisions. I knew people needed to talk and I know we have a good culture that's pretty trusting. They got one slide, that was the only time we had a slide and it could be a picture of what you're talking about because as you probably know, we all know, something that changed your life sadly was very rarely something great. It was some sort of character builder, some sort of finding optimist, optimism in the fear of failure, powering through, re leaning on others, being self-aware of where you are and what you need. And so it was an extremely emotional couple of hours. In fact, so much so I really screwed up in my first design. When you give people this space, and I learned this from a mentor of mine who built Toyota University, everybody wants to talk about themselves. Everyone mm -hmm. wants to be heard. Everyone has challenges. Yes, cultural differences are different. 
you create the right space, they will step into it, including Japanese engineers. So if I can do it, you can do it. We've since added a little more time, still not an hour, but they have enough time to kind of compose themselves if it's been tough. So what's your story? Now I'll share that with everybody. What do you need from us? Is your story in your head the same as if someone was to ask about you? Would they tell the story that you'd like them to tell about you? So that's the last piece is the going forward. And I was thrilled that when my first cohort, my brave guinea pig said, why is this only five hours? It should be all day. Because everyone says nothing should be more than an hour. And it was funny. Someone said, yeah, that's boring content. This is fascinating. I haven't looked at my phone. So how do you measure the success of this? I went to some of the folks in this chef's table class that said they were transformed. So I went back and said, how does this fit for you? And he said, for the first time working in a company, and he's over 50, I'll leave it at that, said, I can bring all of me to work. I can rip the mask off and be who I am. And I've never been allowed to do that. And so uh, we have an engineer who will remain nameless. Everybody probably knows who it is, who I love working with, who would not be your stereotypical person who would have signed up or anyone would have thought for this crazy program where you watch TV for six hours, watch these chefs and come back and tell your life story. And he did. And it was within a week of going through it and talking about how it worked. He was so interested in the how'd you get people who don't know each other to sort of then in the middle cry to then the end say, we're best friends and are going to help each other in a six hour period. And I, we talked about it. And within a week, he started a program and said, I want to do leadership through movies. It's my passion, as opposed to, again, classroom teaching. Is that okay? And I was like, well, of course, I just did it through chef's table. That's the goal, through art, through music. I don't care what it is, whatever makes you the most comfortable. And he started a program where every week now, a bunch of passionate people about movies come and they pick the movie and then they talk about it in the spirit of leadership. So there's someone who isn't in training, who isn't in leadership, who's an amazing engineer, is now taking a new group in and saying, let's look at leadership through this lens that I like, that you're like, and we can then connect over different things. So that happened within a week of um, him going through the session. And I just think yeah. it's a way, you know, Brad and myself and the, EL, the executive team can create that but it's really creating the space to let them know what they're supposed to do, give them the space to do it in their own way that I'm probably most proud of. When people tell their stories going forward, do they explicitly or implicitly talk about meaning or purpose? Yes. Uh -huh. Uh -huh. That's almost everybody's story, right? Is they got, why did they get into leadership? Why are you still there? Do you still want to be in the, I didn't, I opened this up to non people managers. So I say anyone can lead. And by the way, majority of our work at One Login is collaborative. So everybody has to lead at some time, whether they report into you or not. So it was reminding us why we're here. Yeah. And I think the the important point here too, in that question, Daniel, is, is the context for what was going on at the time, hmm. which is the pandemic was happening. Everybody was moving to this work from home, remote, remote work situation, regardless of the types of business, or you had spouses or uh, family members that were out of work because their job didn't um, uh, align to what was happening with the pandemic. But, and I talked about this a lot with customers. What was the first reaction of all companies, ourselves included, was focus on the technology and tools. Get Zoom out there, get everybody on these communications channels, get new technologies that maybe we weren't utilizing to the best extent before and get it out there and get it in people's hands. And then uh, ourselves, as well as I think a lot of other businesses out there, certainly a lot of our customers experienced the same thing, which is it didn't help. 
and we're encouraged as leaders from our legal teams to our HR teams to others as, hey, don't get personally involved with your employees. Separate the personal persona from the professional persona. Now, the separation of these personas, you couldn't make happen. And I think that's part of it that's not going to change as we go forward as part of people's stories is that as leaders, you've got to encourage the connection between your personal life stories and your professional uh, direction going forward. And you've got to be a part of that. You've got to be part of engaging that, uh, whether that's through the social issues and having a point of view or, or driving them forward. But the second insight was that how do you engage what was clearly the problem was not the tools, not the technology, not the data, not all the IQ elements to make you smarter, but the social elements and the emotional elements of, hey, I'm failing here, I need help, or socially is I rely on my relationships with other people and I have none of those. You can't get that through a Zoom video call. Mm -hmm. And so how do you start to make these connections for employees, the social connections, the, the emotional outlets, um, and also encourage them to let it be known that what's happening in their personal lives is part of their professional story in their professional lives and we get it, we understand it as a company, as a team going forward and we're going to encourage this mixing as we go forward. And that's when you start to see the performance change. That reminds me, Brad, you said at one point that you saw a jump in performance. Do you have metrics for that? Yeah. Yeah. Well, we Thankfully. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> we definitely do. I mean, our metrics come in terms of our growth, comes yeah. in terms of our net income, comes in terms of our employee attrition rates. So mm -hmm. growth jumped, net income jumped, our attrition rate dropped is... Our Q1, Q2 last year was not a great performance. It was fine, but it wasn't great. Q3 started to be really good. Q4, fantastic. Q1 this year, phenomenal. Wow. And so when you look at kind of what happened to us as a company and what we walked through is we didn't get smarter. We got better. And how we got better is we learned how to work with one another and how to engage with one another in a very different set of ways. And so from that um, is, that's the professional metrics, Daniel. Yeah. Months ago is my daughter sitting around the dinner table said, dad, you're better to be around. And that's the first time <laughs> in a long time I heard my daughter say that, right? Which is, you're just better to be around. And the reality is, is that, you know, I learned a lot about myself uh, after about six to seven months of this pandemic wow. is, how to socially and emotionally adjust my attitude across the board. But with that, uh, you know, you can directly correlate the outcomes of the business. Economically, things didn't change radically. Hmm. Um, so what did change? Hmm. It's our approach in terms of how we were operating, how we were thinking about things, how we were engaging with our employees and kind of going through that learning curve. Are you somehow, um... I hate to use the word, but institutionalizing this, making it part of the, making it a norm. Yes, absolutely. As a matter of fact, we're doing it in everything from our actions and our activities to our language. Um, and so first off is that it became remote work. That was the term that the industry started using uh, last year. Well, remote work still implies that you have a centralized office location and that everybody else is inferior because they are remotely working. Uh, so rather than call it remote work, let's call it work from everywhere or work from anywhere. Um, but the language, the words are important because it actually connotes to the folks that aren't at a centralized office location that they're just as important. Second thing is that 
this is not as everybody gets vaccines and arms and offices start going up is that there is not a professional impediment towards advancement um, opportunities if you're going to be working from everywhere or working from anywhere the third piece is that this engagement um, that courtney is talking about in terms of the programs we, she's not only put together this program, but the unconferences, a lot of other of these emotional engagement programs uh, that are now standard, if not fundatory practices in terms of our education system internally as a company as we go forward. And then we're doing other things around how we recruit. Um, I mean, this gives us a wonderful opportunity to recruit in new and different ways is that, you know what, uh, I could have never recruited in Alabama in Birmingham, Alabama before. But now I can recruit there because if I've got to work from anywhere, culture is if they're working out of their house or uh, a strip mall in Alabama, it's just as easy to do that as it is San Francisco. So what signals do you send potential recruits about the kind of organization you want? Yeah, so the number one thing, and we know this from the anecdotes from our employees, we also, like everybody, has our engagement tools that we look at. And we ask in there a question, what's the, if, what's the one on your worst day? What's the one thing that keeps you here? And to uh -huh. see, they all say the people, the people, the people, the people, the people, probably pretty common. I'm guessing a lot of companies, but I know they mean it. Our employees are the best recruiters. They go out and find talent. They go out and interview. And I think it sounds better than coming from Brad and I when it comes to the employees. It's a different place. And even on our worst days or when we screw up the worst, the middle of pandemic, I say because of the people. Mm -hmm. So to not have programs that allow people to talk about their passions and their diverse backgrounds and the challenges they face, we'd be missing a lot um, by not doing that and leaving it more clinical in nature. Yeah, Daniel, there's two parts in terms of how I'd add on to the answer to that question, which is number one is that one of the ways that we differentiate ourselves to prospective employees is that we are not a GOR gorilla, gorilla we are a GUE gorilla. And uh, that means that we have to differentiate in very unique ways to get people to come on board with us. I can't compete on cash alone. I've got to compete in a very different way. And it does get to these emotional and social aspects of what they can expect from us as a company. We have five core values and they're just words unless you actually put them to action. Every one of the leadership team knows those inside and out. But to Courtney's point, and she preached this from day one when we were going through the values creation exercise for us as a company uh, a few years back, which is it's great to have these values and it's great to put the words around them and have a narrative that the company could speak about. But if we don't internalize them as a leadership team, then they're no good. If we don't hire to them, they're no good. If we can't measure to them, they're no good. So you said there were five. What are they? First is security first. It's core to what we do for our, for our customers. It's our core value proposition to our customers, but it's more than that. It's also, and it certainly has shown this last year for our employees, it's how our employees identify with the company, how secure they feel in their employment, how secure they, they feel in their jobs. More importantly, with some of the violence that's gone around with Black Lives Matter and uh, what's going on with the Asian community today, do you feel safe in this company? Uh, based on the actions that we're doing as leaders. So both in terms of the product we deliver to our customers, but the culture we create. The second core value is collaboration, mm -hmm. which is uh, all great companies know how to work together, but the companies that are trying to, to beat the competition in a way that is much bigger, or we're going up against those gorillas, we only win as a team. That means that we have uh, not only a shared sense of values, but we have a shared sense of measurements around success. The leadership team has shared metrics to their bonus. 
um, rather than individual performance goals, the vast majority of the bonus is actually tied up into the overall shared uh, collective success of everybody. And we drive that through, through down in the organization. It depends on how well everyone does. Exactly, exactly. And it also comes out in terms of um, how our customers' success actually happens. So collaboration is not just internal. It's how you collaborate with your customers in terms of developing new products, new features, new capabilities, and how you drive their success. Um, industry analysts, uh, the reason that we are in like Gartner's leadership quadrant and some of these other areas is that our customers keep coming back and telling us how well we collaborate in terms of driving their success. Mm. That gets to the third one, which is customer focused. So Amazon may tell you that they're fanatical about their customers and everybody seems to have a different value around customer. Um, we love our customers, but at the same time, we're in an area of technology and space which is changing all the time and they have a great deal of dependency on us to actually lead them to what is happening and where it's going next, uh, an expectation around that. And so a high, having a high degree of focus on not only their success, but their issues and what's going on is critically important. Not so much so that we are actually building everything they tell us to go build, because we're in an area where they expect us to lead versus then an expectation of them telling us what to do. Mm -hmm. And so we have got this internal intrinsic culture of hey, first start with the customer and work back, but let's work from their challenge rather than work from their ask. Because if we do that, then we can get them to where they need to be. The old Wayne Gretzky uh, quote of skating to where the puck is versus where they want us to be right now and where that's going. The fourth area is around creativity. And creativity can come from everywhere and every idea. And the important thing about this cultural value is not innovation and a new way of doing things. Certainly that's a big part of it. But it's also about how do you create the relationships within the organization and the respect for diversity of thought and diversity of points of view that allow those things to bubble up. And this is where it's a hidden, the hidden piece behind creativity is diversity. It is the only way that you see around corners as a company and as a culture is by having a whole lot of people looking at it, the problem through a different lens. They see it from a different perspective. I was talking to the guy who was the director of Sandia National Labs, like yeah. 4,000, 5,000 PhDs. He said, we have a norm here. I don't know who started it, but whenever anyone expresses a new idea, the next person who speaks must be an angel's advocate. Yeah, <laughs> <laughs> yeah that is absolutely correct. Otherwise, you squash, you corrupt, you kill versus nurture and, and enjoy, right? Yeah. And you've got to celebrate that. Yeah, yeah. And then the final one is accountability, Daniel, is that all of these other things are nice things to have and promote within a culture. But at the end of the day, is you gotta be, you gotta follow through on the commitments you make. But accountability is more than a personal ideal. It's not about I, it's about us when we talk about accountability. And what we mean by that is it's the same thing that I teach to my daughters as, as their dad, but the same thing that we do in, in the company here is that accountability is not about you showing up and doing what you said you do. Accountability is about understanding the dependencies that everybody else has placed upon you about mm. you doing your job. And that when you don't do your job, it's not about the fact that you didn't do the job. It's about the fact that all of these other people, customers, employees, others have placed these dependencies on you and they are now failing because you didn't show up and become accountable to what you're doing, right? Mm -hmm. And so it's, it's the collective twist on accountability rather than taking it from I, it's taking it from we and looking at it from that perspective. And we feel that 
we talk about those through the interview process. We measure to those. We have cultural awards that happen every month where we reward to those. Um, and then from a st strategy and a business process perspective, everything that we do, we take it through the lens of these values and, and connect it in one of these ways, no matter what it is, uh, to drive us forward. And it's a framework, like any other framework. It's a framework that works for us, uh, but it definitely leads to this performance. And as you notice, none of those were intelligence or IQ or anything else like that. Uh, they really do get around the connective tissue around social engagement, emotional engagement. So uh, in, in the framework I'm working with now for emotional intelligence, there's four parts. There's self-awareness, there's managing yourself well, there's empathy, tuning into people around you, and then putting it all together for good relationships. With that, can you see through that lens at what you're doing and tell me how different things fit into one or another part of that? First off, in terms of the self-awareness, I think that's probably the area of biggest learning, not just for us, but as I said, every company, every customer I've talked to over the last year is that self-awareness, both from a leadership perspective, but also from a company perspective of really understanding uh, who you are individually and who you are as a group. We had, I talked about the pendulum where we had about uh, four to six months where we were really trying to refine our identity and refine who we were collectively, but I would say that individually. And, you know, I was half joking about the amygdala hijack that happens three times a day before 10 a.m. Uh, but I, there's some reality, there's a lot of reality to that um, uh, for the first several months. It was just a completely different kind of stress that for somebody that is a leader, you're naturally a fixer and you go fix problems, but this is a problem that didn't have the ability to be fixed. And it was just kind of working through that ambiguity to make it happen. Mm -hmm. And I think that's where the self-management piece does come in, which is first off is you gotta be aware, and this is what Courtney's talking about and what we're still doing with our employees is, hey, wait a second, you're not alone. This is really different. This is something you haven't experienced before. You gotta, you gotta get over it to a certain degree. And then you got to move on to the management aspects of it. Mm -hmm. the, the final piece that I would add on to that is that in that context is, is moving forward from a, a social paradigm. And we've hit on this before is that this rethinking about uh, your personas and what you bring to work and how you bring them to work, um, how the difference between your personal and professional life, how those two, those things are all be, um, intertwined now mm -hmm. is the best companies are figuring out this doesn't go away. This is not something that is was reset for a year or a year and a half and then changes back to the old way and we go forward the way that we did before. Is you've got to incorporate this to be successful as a company going forward. People have relearned some attitudes, some behaviors, some approaches. Some of them have worked incredibly well, some of them have not. But the leaders that are succeeding right now, and I know it in terms of what will happen going forward because we will practice it, is that you're taking these learnings now in this forced environment of the last 12 to 18 months um, and applying it as a go forward practice um, as a company and as, as, as you hire and as you manage and as you lead. Beautiful, thank you. Courtney, do you have an answer for your own thoughts? Yeah, I mean, we were planning for a crazy life, right, in the fourth industrial revolution of speed and change. We're not wired for it. We all knew it was coming, and we didn't know how fast. And I, I try to see the silver lining in the pandemic. Again, optimism through bad, bad thing. 
is it just accelerated that and it wasn't a chance to be like, yeah, I don't want to do this now. Like I'll deal with it when it comes, when the robots come or machine learning takes my, you know, I'll deal with it then. And all of a sudden you had the whole world at one time and every industry thrown into this thing that none of us could stop. And it became a real educational environment if you want to put the positive spin on it. And so just fascinating. I think I learned more in one year than I have in 25 years of degrees and, and consulting and, and being a head of HR a couple of times mm -hmm. is to watch it play out and to be able to practice it real time and not in a case study and not in a ballroom. And there was nowhere to really turn because everyone was going through it simultaneously. So, I mean, the magic between the, the flipping back and forth, especially, you know, self-awareness, no brainer, managing your triggers. We always had to do that. Well, it's predicted we're going to get way more moody a lot more often because the spikes in the fourth industrial revolution are going to be more pandemics and climate change and these big things more often. Leaders have to be able to deal with ambiguity or, or get out of the way of leading. They have to be able to manage change and not make it worse by scaring people or making them feel bad or feeling they can't talk. So it's no surprise the prediction for the last 10 years is you're going to see a big change in leaders uh, you know, in the next 10 years, moving up to the top, empathy, moving up to the top, your ability to manage change, which to me is one and the same. Mm -hmm. And you're going to see people that relied on just data and just black and white are going to move more towards the back of the line where they used to be to the front and the empathy people were the right brain people were in the back. I just thought it was the most interesting educational year of my life. And I'm so proud of the people we work with. I think they stay because on their worst days, we were still with them. And on their worst days, someone picked them up. And on their good days, we really do our best to work hard to catch people doing things right when we see them intrinsically motivated or you see them not wait for us or we see them go off and take a risk and try something. And so it's just balancing all of that together, but it still comes back to the same components. You know, this has been very helpful for me. So I want to thank you both for giving me the time and sharing what you have. One of the first things that stood out to me in this interview was how much talk there was around uh, self-awareness and self-management. And we've discussed this a lot, right? These are two, I mean, self-awareness particularly is the most critical competency of emotional intelligence insofar as it's almost impossible to develop across the other EI competencies without some base level or modicum of self-awareness. Uh, but self-management is another competency sometimes referred to as emotional balance that we talk about a lot. I know that the leaders I coach certainly talk about this competency a lot. Um, and it's often one of the reasons that they come to coaching. And one of the first goals they have is to, to better manage their responses. How Brad and Courtney talk about self-awareness in combination with empathy stood out to me. I've been enjoying thinking about the system of an organization as if it were a being, like as if it were a person. And this fits nicely into that exploration. So like a big part of self-awareness for an individual is paying attention to our experience. And that's how we get the information that we need to make informed decisions. So I like to think about what does it mean for an organization to pay attention to its experience? Organizations are made of people. So I think it's listening to the people who make up that system. It's people listening to people. It is empathy. 
I don't even think it's just empathy, but it's also organizational awareness, which they don't really talk about specifically in this interview, but it's really understanding how people plug into the system in a greater sense and how things connect. And they make a really beautiful point in this interview in talking about the role of emotional intelligence and the need for it specifically through COVID and us all being in a place where we've really had to support one another. So accountability looks like being able to say, hey, this is where I am today. I'm not in a good place. Are you in a better or stronger place than I am? And are we able to show up for one another and take on the bulk of the responsibility, the bulk of the work, the bulk of whatever it is? Um, are we able to sort of hold the positive tone for the team in a moment when one of our colleagues can't? And that too is uh, a form of accountability, which does directly relate to, relate to empathy and organizational awareness. And again, the web of EI competencies is always so uh, intricate. You know, everything really starts to, to overlap and you see how multiple competencies are showing up in one example or one behavior. I've always thought about accountability as doing what you say you will do or being responsible. And it is that, but what Brad and Courtney are emphasizing is understanding interdependencies. It isn't just about me, it's about others and the well-being of the system, because what comes with that mindset when we hold the accountability of a system is respect for the importance of each person's work. We see how we depend on others as well. It's a, it's a regard, it's a recognition of that person, of the, of the human. I think you're talking about trust. It opens up a whole container of how is trust built. It's not so much that we make a choice to trust the people around us. That's certainly part of it, but it's that we agree to be in trusting relationship with those around us and to, again, back to accountability, hold one another accountable and um, communicate and show up in ways that build trust. It's so reciprocal in that way. I've also experienced that trusting the others in the system can be a relief. This is a way in which you have to be vulnerable and you have to be honest about where you're at and trust the, the humans. I've been in situations where the leaders, including myself, have been drowning or, or uh, you know, on a, an airplane crashing. And I've seen the, the way that that mindset limits capacity and focuses our attention on ourselves because we need our attention so badly. Our system is so uh, hurting, you know, it's stressed out and it just needs renewal, but we can't get it. And so it's just calling and calling and calling for our attention. But what really would relieve the situation is if we're able to put our attention outwards and communicate and connect with others, both about our needs and about the needs of the system, which is the other humans around us. Something you just said about the interplay of when we're drowning, are we focused on us or are we focused on others enough to ask for help? And I think there's something here about the role of self-awareness in helping us make an effective request, right? So I think it's one thing to say, I need help. And it's another thing to be able to pause, check in and say, what exactly is the help I need? Who can I ask for that help? Who's appropriate to ask for that help? And how can I reach out intentionally and make an effective request, right? With all the elements of effective requests, like make something that's specific, that's time bound, that, that allows people to really fulfill the request because we're delivering it clearly. And that does take, um, 
that takes self-awareness first, right? So I think it's this constant interplay between the I and the us. Absolutely. Absolutely. There's no way that we can formulate coherent thoughts and enough to, to, uh, to communicate properly our needs in that situation. Uh, we're just so, I mean, this is the fight or flight thing. It's like, I, I picture drowning and, and, you know, my arms just flailing and trying anything, just grabbing onto anything, right? This really dovetails with what Courtney is saying in this interview about the fourth industrial revolution and talking about the speed of change and talking about um, what I would call the great transition that we're in, right? Where we, I mean, we've, our coming out of supposedly, we don't really know yet. We think we're coming out of a, a global health pandemic kind of remains to be seen what happens. And certainly things are differing country to country and geography to geography. Climate change is upon us, wildfires, floods, the temperature of the planet rising at large. There are so many challenging things to sit with right now, right? So this capacity to be with what is hard is so imperative. And it, you know, one of the things that comes through in this interview is Courtney and Brad talk a lot about the sort of bifurcation of the work self and the, the home self or the personal life self, right? And that being kind of one of the greatest um, downfalls, or I would say even the greatest myths of the working person. And they, they talk about the need to really leave space within the work setting for the whole person to show up, right? And I don't know, Hanuman, if you're familiar with the concept of teal, it's a, um, it's, uh, there was a book written called Reinventing Organizations by Frederick Leloux. And he talks about how different styles of organizations map to different levels in, of human consciousness. And that as we evolve in our consciousness as humanity, our, the, the ways in which we work really change. And so Teal has three principles and they are self-management, you know, working in self-organizing teams, really having a culture in which everyone is leading in some capacity, um, which requires a lot of collaboration, evolutionary purpose, having people feel deeply connected to something meaningful in, in their work and holism, which is, can we be all of ourselves? Can we bring all of ourselves? And I think as we embark upon these challenges where we are inevitably impacted. We can't separate the suffering from who we are in the workplace. I feel really strongly that those days are gone. And I think that's pretty much what Courtney is saying in many ways, like we have to be working with emotional intelligence and practicing emotional intelligence in the workplace. I think it makes us feel quite psychotic to feel so divided in our lives, right? And the pandemic has been proof of that. We just weren't, it wasn't even possible this past year. This reminds me of a story that uh, Elad Levinson tells about when he was in touch with NASA, I think in the 70s, to see if they wanted to implement a stress reduction program there. And the person that he was put in touch with said, there is no stress at NASA. Nobody's stressed here. <laughs> <laughs> so that's sort of like that, that epitomizes the like the ideal of the myth that you're talking about right yeah. high performing yeah uh largely the myth of white men high performing in in this situation and it's funny you know I'm, I'm laughing a little bit as you're saying it because like even thinking for myself that that sort of high performing it, it works up into a point right 
when I actually have to sit with something that's hard, I can say, I don't want to sit with what's hard. In fact, I'm just going to focus in and get the work done and do my thing and try and like check off a to-do list because that too is a form of escapism for me in some way, right? And it's like, that's that's functional up to a point, right? And I always know when that point's coming because all of a sudden there is just like the emotions are welling within, welling within. And, you know, the to-do list is getting checked off on the one hand and the emotions are sort of welling up on the other hand until there's a breaking point. And then it's like, once that breaking point comes, it leaves you in a place where you can't even do anything on the to-do list anymore because you absolutely have to face what you're feeling, right? And I think that just is the nature of feelings. And if we were like in a place where we were able to be with them as they as they rose and fall, they wouldn't actually take us away from being productive, right? It would be much more like a sort of envisioning the infinity symbol here, like a flowing in and out of the feeling state and the doing state and the feeling state and the doing state. And our feelings would become better and our doing would become better. If you're interested in becoming an emotionally intelligent leader, you might want to check out the book entitled What Makes a Leader? Why Emotional Intelligence Matters by Daniel Goleman. It's a pretty handy little book that has Dan's Harvard Business Review articles, including the article with which it shares a title, What Makes a Leader, one of HBR's best-selling articles ever. The book can be found at keystepmedia.com shop. Thanks for listening to First Person Plural, EI and Beyond. Subscribe now and sign up for our newsletter to get notified as new episodes are released. This show is brought to you by our co-hosts, Daniel Goleman and Hanuman Goleman, and is sponsored by Key Step Media, your source for personal and professional development materials focused on mindfulness, leadership, and emotional intelligence. Special thanks to Kobe, whose voice you heard at the top of the show. And to today's guests, Brad Brooks and Courtney Harrison. For guest bios, transcripts, and resources mentioned in today's episode, check out our episode notes on our website, firstpersonplural.com. This episode was written and produced by Elizabeth Solomon and me, Gabriela Acosta. Episode art and production support by Bryant Johnson. Music in this episode includes Transition by Meter and theme music by Amber Ojeda. Until next time, be well. If you enjoyed today's episode, please rate our show and submit a review. It helps us spread the word about the show. If you want to go the extra mile to support our show, you can become a patron. For as little as $5 a month, you can get exclusive access to extended interviews and behind-the-scenes content. Sign up at patreon.com slash firstpersonplural.